Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. So Kea, I loved this week's conversation. I'm a big fan of who we interviewed this week, Dr. Jolene Brighton, for many reasons, but she was actually really instrumental in my journey. So I know I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but you know, I was on birth control since I was a teenager, strictly because I had horrible, horrible PMS. And I only got off of it in my late 20s. And when I got off of it, I felt like my hormones, you know, not only were out of whack, but like came back with a vengeance and my symptoms were so, so bad to the point where I truly couldn't function. I couldn't go to work, you know, outside of just the cramps and the bad bloating. And, you know, strangely, the breast tenderness was really tough for me too. It was really the cystic acne that got me like, I need help. I don't know what's going on. It was really stopping me from living my day-to-day life. And I've never felt that before. Like I didn't have acne as a teenager. So that was the final straw. And so much of Jolene's work has been so helpful. She's talked about post-birth control syndrome syndrome, which I didn't even know what that was, but it just made me feel seen like, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. There's something out there that, you know, at least I can identify with and work through it in a more integrative and naturopathic approach, which I was looking for because I did not want to go back on the pill. So this was a fun one because I just think she's just amazing. And the way she explains stuff really makes it easy to understand. So I, I love this one. And we talk a little bit about birth control as well in this interview, but it was definitely a fun one for me. Yeah, I agree. I don't know about you, Yasmin, but I kind of felt like I was in a sex ed class. It was crazy. And you know, I watched an interview with Dr. Brighton before and she asked the person, what did you learn in sex education when you were in high school? And I don't know about you, Yasmin, but I literally can't even remember what we learned. I don't even think I had the class. Is that possible? (laughs) I feel like there was definitely health ed most places. Maybe we learned about periods. Mostly, I think... I honestly don't remember learning anything about female anatomy really at all Um, and not kind of understanding all of that until later in my life, like not even knowing that there's a difference between a vagina and a labia and like what we think is one thing is actually another thing. And so I just thought that this episode was so informative. She has a way of explaining things where it's so educational, but it's also really fun. And I appreciated that. And it definitely felt like girlfriends having a conversation, but learning things at the same time. Yeah. And Kay, I know you were saying you were asking her because we loved listening to her so much if she's ever been a professor, because she'd be such an amazing professor. And she said she has. So you know, I'm not surprised because it was super engaging. And what I love so much about Jolene is she really makes you feel understood. And the fact that what you might uniquely be going through is considered normal. And I think so many times as women, whether it's our sexual health, reproductive health, we're like, God, like, is there something wrong with me? Like, why do I feel this? Or why am I going through this? Am I alone? And she just really helps normalize it and really makes you understand like, it's normal. It's just, we're just not educated on these factors. So this was a super reassuring interview and we loved it. I feel like we could have talked to her for hours, so... Absolutely. I totally agree. Today's guest is Dr. Jolene Brighton. She is a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist, clinical sexologist, and prominent leader in women's medicine. She's a fierce patient advocate and completely dedicated to uncovering the root cause of hormonal imbalances. 
Dr. Brighton empowers women worldwide to take control of their health and their hormones. We love that. She is an international speaker, clinical educator, medical advisor with the tech community, and considered a leading authority on women's health. She's also part of the Mind Body Green Collective and a faculty member for the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Her work has been featured in places like the New York Post, Forbes, Cosmo, Huffington Post, Bustle, The Guardian, and ABC News. She is also the author of Beyond the Pill, which Yasmin was talking about, and her newest book is called Is This Normal, which we talk about in today's episode. So let's get into it. I want to talk about what my mom told me a few years ago. She told me that when she got married she didn't actually know what sex was. Mm-hmm. She like kind of was like, maybe I have an idea. Maybe I don't really know. And when I think about that, I, I don't blame that generation of women or the women that came before them for yeah. not educating us because she literally didn't know what sex was. But that lack of a roadmap led me as a teenager to think that I was abnormal, that the things that were happening to my body, the way that I looked were so unique to me. Everybody else has it figured out. They get it. They get their bodies. And I'm just like a freak or something. We all Have we all? I mean, people comment to us. I think we've all had that experience of like, I'm the freak. Something's wrong with me. I'm the weirdo here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I love about your book, Is This Normal?, is that it makes women feel less alone, right? Like some of those questions that we had growing up and maybe even still now are questions that other women have. And so I'm curious when you were researching and thinking through this book, what were some of the most common questions around our reproductive health and around sex that came up that are like, is this normal? Oh yeah. Okay. So libido is, was just a huge one. Um, That's one that I've been asked for more than the last 10 years of my life as a physician. And then all through, um, you know, social media as well. Once things, I let people know like, oh, it's anonymous, like these Ask Dr. Brighton sessions, that's where they really flooded in. And a lot of the libido and sex questions. And and I pulled my audience to want to understand like, why is it like you haven't talked to your doctor about these things? And the one of the top reasons is because they're like, my doctor can't help me. Like I've tried, they've dismissed me, but here we are in a culture where we don't really talk about these things. We're not taught how to talk about these things. It makes us really vulnerable. So if you're not even going to get help with it, like why bring it up? Why talk about it? And so libido is a really big one. The way my vulva looks, because we have like, honestly, like the um, biggest perpetrators of the myth that a vulva should be. Uh, and so where everyone's on the same page, the vulva is the outside. We're talking about the labia majora, labia minora. Those people call the outer lips, the inner lips. This is where the clitoris hangs out. This is where all the good stuff like, you know, is happening. Actually, there's a lot of good stuff going on down there, but it's one of the good spots. So anyhow, the biggest perpetrators of like thinking it should be uniform in color, uniform in shape and size that like the the labia minora should always be tucked up has really been medicine. And you see like on TikTok, plastic, sur- not plastic surgeons, actually, they're mostly cosmetic surgeons being like, oh, you need, this is the way a perfect vulva looks. And I'm like, I call bullshit. Like there is no one perfect vulva. There's your vulva and it's perfect. As long as it's functional, 
it's perfect. And so questions about why does my body look this way? Why does it function this way? Um, but libido, that's why I dedicated a whole chapter. I'm like, I really could have had this be half the book in itself and everything I could say about, you know, is it normal that my sexual desire shifts with my cycle? Is it normal that, you know, I'm experiencing a lack of desire for my partner, like given these, these things are going on, you know, with libido, libido is one of those ones that people always look to like, and you know, their neighbor, their friend, their partner. And they're like, let me compare and despair because I must not be normal because I'm not like them. But we don't do that. Like nobody's hanging around with like their neighbor being like, what's your menstrual cycle? Like, oh, I must be a freak. And like, we understand that there's some variation that happens with them. Um, you know, we, there's all of these other parameters. Like you don't talk to your neighbor and you're like, oh, what's your sleep like? And if their sleep is like 10 hours and yours is eight, you're not like, oh God, something's totally wrong with me. But around sex, that is like such a taboo topic where we've had a void of information. We've had a void in the amount of information that our providers, our medical providers are actually taught so they can't even navigate it so well. And then all we've got are is like the media. Like we really just have the media showing us. Um, so as they say in the book, like with vampire diaries, that being one, um, you know, the way things are, are portrayed is always like, you know, so flawless, seamless, like libidos. I mean, these are all a bunch of teenagers. Everybody's libidos pretty much up during their teen years, almost everyone. But, you know, I say in the book with vampire diaries, like how did, how did vampires even get wet? How, if they don't have blood flow, how do they get an erection? Somebody explain these things to me. And yet we take this fictional fantasy and we think like, oh, wow, this is the way a relationship should be. This is the way sex should be. And it's like, friends, their heart doesn't beat. Therefore, a vagina does not lubricate and a penis does not become firm. So like, what is happening here? I'm so glad you're talking about this. It's so interesting because no one talks about, or, or we look at movies and fantasies, like you were saying, and we have this depiction of sex and even relationships. I feel like that could be a whole nother conversation we have. We all have this idea of how it should be, but it's like, there's so much work that goes into the day-to-day -day for you to create, you know, beautiful relationships. But I want to go back to, you know, lower libidos. This is something we hear about a lot also from our community. So from your perspective, what are maybe some of the key drivers that you think is really impacting women who feel like their sex drive is low? So one is not understanding their, like their normal. And so that's what I take people through the book is understanding what your normal is and really your archetype. So the archetype we always see on TV is the spontaneous desire. Like people are always in the mood, ready to go. Like no, there's no foreplay, there's just instant orgasms. And that is one version of normal for some people, can be very normal in the beginning and then not what's true for you later in a relationship. But there's also the normal, which is responsive desire which is where things have to get going before any thought of sex gets going. And so you're not likely to be the person who initiates sex. Maybe your partner is like, oh God, like you're not that into me and you're never like the one to like chase me. And, so, and it's because like sex is not on your brain until sex is happening. Like these, like these physical and psychological cues are really all up in your space. And then the brain's like, oh yeah, I like that. And that is normal. So there's that aspect of just not understanding what is true for you. And then there's also the aspect of hormones. So I talk through the different ways that hormones can impact our sexual desire, our ability to orgasm. So one thing to understand is that it is totally normal as you ramp up to ovulation, which researchers have termed the sexual phase, 
to be really into your partner. So as estrogen and testosterone, so estrogen ramps up, let me back it up and give the, like, the, like how does this work physiologically? Estrogen ramps up as the follicular development is reaching ovulation. So the winner, the chosen egg is, is going to be released soon. Estrogen ramps up. And then just before ovulation, estrogen spikes. It's like a flare to the brain and it says egg is ready. And the brain says, cool, cool. Here's luteinizing hormone. LH drops down. That triggers the release of the egg. And now we find ourselves in the luteal phase as the corpus luteum is, is formed. That's a structure left behind in the ovary and progesterone produ production begins. So in the estrogen ramp up, Estrogen and testosterone are like, yes, we're going to stimulate sexual fantasies. We're going to make you more receptive to your partner. You know, that stress that like usually turns you off, it's going to, we're going to dampen it down a bit because like, we just want to get you knocked up. So, like spoiler to the book. Uh, I will teach you how to not get knocked up and also leverage your hormones for better sex. If you're like, I don't want a baby. So with that, once you ovulate, you're going to go into progesterone heavy phase. At least it should be. That should be the leading hormone in the luteal phase. Estrogen's still there. But because of that, it is normal to be super into your partner, to be thinking about sex, to even have easier orgasms prior to and at the day of ovulation and maybe even the day after. But once progesterone takes over, it is normal for you now to be like, I would rather get into sweatpants than get into your pants, literal Netflix and chill. Let's get our cuddle on. And I'm, you know, not going to be as, you know, inclined to initiate in that way. And that's normal. And that doesn't mean that you become sexually void during your luteal phase. It just means things have to shift as your hormones shift, your mood shifts, your neurotransmitters shift. And so that is normal, but there are aspects of not normal as you can imagine. So people always jump to like testosterone being low as the primary one. I will tell you that I've never seen a patient who has only low libido as a symptom of low testosterone. So in the book, I give a whole quiz and take you through what does low testosterone really look like? You're going to have low mood, lack of motivation. You're going to be sad, maybe even easy to cry. And that's all the time. That's not just before your period is coming. You're losing muscle mass. Like there's a lot of things that go with low testosterone. So if it's just a libido issue, we sort of have to asking questions about like estrogen, thyroid hormone, cortisol, what's going on with insulin? If we've got insulin and blood sugar and cardiometabolic issues going on, that can lead to the clitoris being less sensitive. Well, if sex is not as pleasurable and your brain is like, well, that's not that good, or it's painful because maybe we have too little estrogen and we have vaginal dryness going on, then you're going to avoid it. And so to understand that there is who you are, there are the psychological aspects, and then there's all these things that your hormones are doing to interface with the psychological aspects and to also shift to your environment. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind 
kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back to today's episode. It's good that basically every single person, there could be a unique reason, right? So it's not just like there could be anatomically something's going on. There could be like, hey, maybe you need more romance in your relationship. Maybe you need to check on your hormones. Maybe you need to check on your blood sugar, whatever it is. So I love that it could be unique to every person. I remember being in a women's circle, quite a few ones actually, and the con- uh, the topic of orgasm comes up a lot. And I think still even at my age and even older, there are a lot of misconceptions about orgasm. What is it? Is there even such a thing as a vaginal orgasm, right? So like all of these questions come up and I remember a lot of the women saying, they're like, I don't actually know if I've ever experienced an orgasm. I don't even know like what that feels like. How do I even get there? So what are some of the most common misconceptions around orgasm and what are some of the barriers to orgasm? Yeah. Okay. So there's a whole chapter on orgasms as well, because you're right. These these questions come up a lot and they're usually on the hush or they'll happen in women's circles, but like, where are they happening in places where we feel safe to talk about it? And that maybe we can do information gathering and and get some Intel. And I'm really hoping that enough people read, is this normal? So that when someone does come to you with these questions, you're like, I actually, I know the answer. Like I've actually read about it. Like I can help you with this. So when it comes to orgasms, everybody, has a different experience and yet just like regardless of gender the experience is similar so i say that because depending on where you're at in your cycle what phase you are in your life how you arrived at orgasm it can be experienced and felt differently what's interesting is i talk about a study in this book in the book is this normal where they asked researchers experts sexperts if you will hey identify which gender had this orgasm and they couldn't. They're like, I don't know, it was a man or a woman. And so there's, you know, a loose definition of orgasm that I give in the book, which is basically like the buildup and release of pressure. So you feel all of this tension in the body, in your mind sometimes as well. And then there is this release that is followed by euphoria, you know, so to speak. And what all of that feels like can look different for you. And so to your question about the vaginal orgasm, This is one that I have spoken on stages around the world. And whenever I present the slide, then based on the research, only about 18% of women have a vaginal orgasm. And it is arguable, like we can argue that it's potentially the clitoris is being stimulated because the clitoris is this vast structure that is, you know, lining the walls of the vagina. So it's like these little wishbone wings that are coming down. It's not just that little nub on the outside. So there may be clitoral stimulation also happening internally, even externally. And that the difference that research has found thus far between someone who can have a vaginal orgasm or someone who primarily needs a clitoral orgasm to, you know, clitoral stimulation to reach an orgasm is anatomy. It's basically what you're born with and and the way things are set up. 
it is also, you know, in my mind, when I you know, read about that, of like, oh, the distance from, you know, the, the, the clitoris and the uh, vaginal opening. And I think about like, is this part of why women will say sex got so much better after having a baby? Because after everything's stretched out and then it comes back together, um, certainly like that changes the anatomy in some way. I'm also like, you get really comfortable with your body after a human passes through it and you've had to be like naked and vulnerable. And like, there's a lot to childbirth that can go with that. But so I bring all this up because it's important to understand that if you do not achieve an orgasm via vaginal penetration, that is normal. If you do, that is normal. But we know that without a doubt that clitoral stimulation is the number one way that a orgasm is achieved, even when women are masturbating on their own. And that, you know, I want everybody to understand is a really important factor in the research of self-pleasure, because what we find is that there's this huge orgasm gap where, you know, 95% of the time men are orgasming and women are only orgasming 65% of the time specific to a heterosexual relationship. And yet when you take women and you ask them like, how long does it take you to get there? And can you orgasm? Like we're almost hitting hundred percent and some women are doing it in four minutes. And like, it's a very, very different scenario. And so it's not that women don't have the ability to orgasm or they're broken in sex. It is that we really haven't educated on pleasure. I mean, our sex ed is not pleasure focused, certainly not female pleasure focused. And we haven't educated the male counterpart, the penis owner who doesn't have a vulva, who doesn't understand like how a vulva works, right? We haven't educated them well enough on where is the clitoris and how do you stimulate the clitoris. It's why in the book, I have multiple diagrams of the clitoris. You'll get more accurate anatomy than your average medical textbook anatomy on the clitoris. And I put a vulva overlaying it so that you can see, because as I say in the book, I do not believe that it, men want to be the brunt of the joke, right? I don't believe it's fair that there are all these jokes. They're funny jokes. Don't get me wrong. I always have a good laugh when, um, you know, I see the threads of people being like, you know what it's like having sex with a man is like getting your back scratched, but like they never hit the itchy spot. And it's like, those things crack you up because they're relatable. And like, we've all been there at some point and yet understand that like, you know, there's some things women who are like, men don't care about women's pleasure. Men just don't care. I don't believe that's true for the majority of men. I just believe they haven't been educated in a way that helps them navigate the vulva as it is. But in addition, we don't, we don't talk much about sex and we don't teach people how do you even navigate that conversation? I mean, talks of consent just started like in the last handful of years and people are like, oh, we need to talk about consent. And it's like, oh man, we haven't even been talking about consent. Like, how are people talking about like pleasure in the bedroom? Yeah. It's so interesting. When I was in high school, all of my male friends were watching porn. Like that's where they got all of their information about sex and women. And I imagine maybe that's still the thing. So here's the thing though, that's interesting about the research of the porn that men watch. Men watch porn that's very male centered. They want to see a lot of penises for whatever reason. I don't know. I think it's be, I don't know actually, but like one hypothesis is because they're trying to figure out like, how do they use their own? <laughs> so like they're trying to get the moves, but 
you know, that is also, people are like, well, porn's the problem. And I'm like, yeah, but if you look at sex ed, sex ed is also male centered. What are we taught about the vagina besides babies and blood coming out of it is that it's for a penis to go in. And we even look back into medicine and how we even got the problem with the clitoris to begin with. And I outline this in the book, like one, medicine made a choice to omit the clitoris. They were like, yeah, female pleasure, forget about it. We're not teaching about it. We're going to just cut the structure out. It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. The clitoris wasn't discovered in the 90s. It was acknowledged in the 90s. It was discovered a very long time ago. Um, you know, there's many physicians. And then we've got Freud, who's like seriously the freaking worst. And he was like, oh, the, the you know, clitoral orgasm is infantile. Women should aspire for a vaginal orgasm. And it's like, okay, and once again, who does that serve? That's very penis centered. That is very male centered. And that is why in part men are looking at porn as a way to like figure it all out is because they've always been taught this very male centered approach to everything. I mean, even when men are trying to learn about women and pleasure, they're asking other men, like you see all these like like bro podcasts and they're all talking like they know anything and I'm listening as a doctor and I'm just like yeah no like and they're the ones teaching other men I'm like why are y'all not asking women like just ask them because like they want they want they want this pleasure and also like you know it's like communication is like the way to next level your sex life no matter who you are I feel like I have a million questions for Jolene every time I hear her talk I'm like my brain goes a million ways but <laughs> One thing that I'm curious about, you know, this kind of goes into maybe the only 8% of women having orgasms or a lot of women feeling like they have a low sex drive. I want to get your thoughts around stress. I heard you in another interview say that sometimes, you know, it's like your nervous system is putting these blockades in the way. So tell me more about that. Because when I heard that, I was like, gosh, that could maybe resonate with a lot of people that are listening. I love that you circle back to this because the comment earlier was like, women need more romance in their life. And I'm like, they need less romance and they need more support. Like, that's the reality of it. And Hallmark and all the powers that be are always like, give the roses, buy the chocolate, do the scented things, like some lingerie. And it's like, those things may do it for someone. You're normal if you're like, I don't care about the chocolate or the roses. Well, we can't be friends if you don't care about the chocolate. I don't know about you. No, I'm just kidding. But um, but you're normal if those things don't do it for you or if they're not enough to do it for you or you're not receptive to those things ever. That's all normal. And so in the book, I actually give a quiz, lots of quizzes in the book. And this one is a very common intake form in the sexual health arena where like almost no one ends up because doctors don't often refer to sex therapists and sex counselors as they should more often, in my opinion. But it's to help you understand your gas pedal and your brakes. So this is a model by two researchers, Bancroft and Jansen. It's called the dual control model. And um, I, I get a lot of people who are always like, I hate that women are being compared to cars. Well, the model actually started with men, okay? Um, and then they were like, maybe we should think about women. And so that one's also for my men who are like, but what about us? Yeah, they thought about you first. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so this doesn't matter, like you doesn't matter what anatomy you're packing. This is true for everyone and to different degrees. So we've got to think about the nervous system as the sexual organ that really can run interface between what is happening in our environment and what is happening with our genitals and our desire overall in our brain. So I'd like to give the example of like a train track. And so your partner is going to like be trying to send the sexy signal and that's the train going around the train track. But depending on the factors that have happened in your day, you may not be able to receive that signal. 
So perhaps you had a really stressful day at work and your boss yelled at you and degraded you and you feel like a horrible person now. That's going to lay a blockade. And then maybe you were at the store trying on clothes, like H&M, why you do a sturdy with your lighting, but like you're in there and you're like, oh my God, do I have all this cellulite? And like, are those rolls? And like, what's going on? Because as women were conditioned to like, think our body was only made to be looked at. It's not, but that lays down a blockade. And then you get home and you're like, damn it, my partner. And this is like, you know, this can happen in any relationship, but like a lot of times the disconnect is happening between men and women because of so, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast about disconnects between men and women, but like your partner, maybe they didn't pick up takeout and they said that like they would have dinner handled and then they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And the kids are running around the house, but they're watching the game and they're like, can you just handle it? Like throw something together. And you're like, now I also have to make dinner and I couldn't count on you for that. And there's, you're, you're, you're doing that. And you're like, I just need to talk to you. Like my boss said this horrible thing. I'm feeling bad about myself. And they're like, no, now, not now. The game's on. And now you feel like I'm not supported in my relationship. I'm not supported by my partner. My boss thinks I'm a horrible person. I'm having body image issues. Some of this is a you issue. Some of this is a them issue. Some of this is an us issue. So it's not always just one thing or one person to blame. I think that's important because sometimes people are like, Every, you're just pointing the finger at this or that. No, it's, and like, let's just stay neutral about it. These are all blockades laid down. So now the game's over. You like, you know, are doing something in the kitchen. Maybe you bend over. Your partner's like, ooh, I'm going to rub up on them. They're like, they'd be looking so good. And, the, and you're like, I am not into this. Like literally the train cannot move on the tracks. The brain can't get the signal. You're like, you're just in my way right now. <laughs> like, because you have so much, so much going on in the brain that that sexy signal cannot be received. And so that's where we have to start looking at like all of these breaks that can come into play and know that hormones can also be a break. Hormones, whether where you're at in your cycle naturally or whether you're struggling with hypothyroidism, these can all be breaks on the track. And so looking at all of that, because your partner could like stack that train up and like, here's the roses, here's the candles, here's all this stuff. Now we've like, we even got a caboose on the back. It does, it's not moving. It doesn't matter. And that's where all of society is like, do the romantic things, hit the gas pedal more and more, and then maybe the train can move. And sometimes we've got to do some of that to overcome things. But the majority of time, we have to go in and we have to tend to all of that. Um, you know, the other thing that can happen is that you tended to all of that. And then you're in the bedroom, things are getting hot. And maybe like you catch a glimpse of yourself or you're put in a certain you know, position and it feels really good. But then you decide that like, instead of being in it, instead of being on the field playing, you know, the sport, I'm going to sit on the stands and I'm going to be like, oh God, can they see that cellulite that you noticed today? What does your body look like in this position? Like, was that a queef? Did that just come out? Like how embarrassing? Like, and that's called spectator, spectatoring super common phenomenon. And given the way our society has conditioned us, I would also say a normal place for you to end up. And so in hearing all of this, understand that if you've had these experiences, you're normal and there is a lot that you can do about it. So you can get the sexual desire that you want, that feels good to you. You can have the pleasure that you want and also get more comfortable in your skin. And I give exercises in the book on how to do all of that. Like one of them in the 28 day program is like, take inventory of what you love about yourself in the ovulatory phase, because with estrogen up, 
you are curvier, you have less fine lines and wrinkles, your lips look better, your skin looks better, your hair looks better, like you are filling yourself. So that is the time to take inventory because a week before your period, as estrogen takes that back seat and we've got progesterone, maybe you're starting to bloat, you have water, you're going to find ways to hate yourself and to come at yourself. And if you can pull out that journal and be like, remember, remember who you are, like how much you love yourself, like that can be such powerful medicine. Yeah, I love that. And I think um, as Yasmin and I have been working in the space of hormones and understanding our cycles, like dialing into, for me, knowing when I'm, like I know when I'm ovulating so hardcore now, I can feel what's going on with my body. I know how I like feel more confident. It's just been so life-changing for me. And actually something that you said sparked something in me, me and my sister and my cousins, we're all avid romance novel readers. So oh, yeah. We, yeah. we um, there's a new wave of romance books that have come out that are more modern and they're written by women, men written by women, right? That's like the thing. And um, one thing that comes up in there a lot is the men saying to the women during like the sexual acts, like, don't be ashamed of your body. Like, don't be ashamed of your body. Women keep writing that. And I noticed it. And I was like, this is so interesting that women are like we're craving that, right? We're craving this thing of like tell somebody telling us, but maybe we need to tell ourselves, like, don't be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. And then that is the moment that they kind of like come to life and the sexual activity happens. So it just sparked something in there for me of what you were when you were talking. Well, and as you bring that up, a more positive way to come about this when you're in the act of sex, because sometimes when someone's saying, Don't be ashamed of your body and you're having sex, you're like, what? What should I be ashamed of? What are they looking at? Why are they saying this to me? This, this is like a very normal, I'm like, I could see myself doing this, but it's like a very normal thought pattern that can run is for um, outside the bedroom. You can have that conversation and then they can praise the parts of your body. So being like, oh my God, your like thighs are so sexy to me. Cause like maybe like the majority of people, you have stretch marks that are there and you've, you've felt insecure about it. So saying those kinds of positive things, the same is true when you're having sex with somebody else. And instead of being like, yeah, don't do that. Or like, you know, doing instead like, Ooh, when you do this, I really love it. Like, this is so hot to me. This feels so good. And so coming from that perspective, but it is interesting. I don't read romance novels. I kind of wish, um, my husband and I joke, he's like, that'll be your like later years as an author as you'll write romance novels. <laughs> I can do and, that. And, um, I'm just like, yeah, I'm like, I have to read them first and like understand that psychology around that. But, you know, at the very top of this, you had said like your mom didn't know what sex was and it, it um, brought up in my mind, Bridgerton, the very first uh, season of Bridgerton. And people went wild for that series. And part of it is cause like, that was probably the hottest series. Like when I watched it, I was like, this is soft porn. This is what people are like, and it's hot. Okay. So like, we will admit that, but I think it was also really relatable. Like they hit when like Daphne didn't know what was going to happen or what sex was, or even how to get pregnant that he had to actually ejaculate inside of her. Like all of that was super relatable. And so, you know, for you to even say your mom, like a generation ago, there's still like, people who are very confused and that, you know, they are, um, saving themselves for marriage and then they get there and they're like, what am I supposed to do? And sometimes because 
no one ever gave them that permission to question, to explore, like, you know, things like anything, the realm of pornographic. I'm not talking about like, you know, the, the like visual, like, you know, video series, whatever. I'm talking about anything that might be construed as pornographic. Like they, they need to feel shame and bad about, and they shouldn't explore that. And so then you get women who are like, God, I was married for like 20 years and he never gave me an orgasm. And it's like, but I bet he wanted to. And then you've got the statistic that I, have in the book of, you know, over 80% of women faking orgasms, to which I will say, uh, if you are going to be a man who is like, oh, that's because women are liars and da, 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 let me just slow your roll because I always have to explain on social media that the number one reason is altruistic deceit is that women want you to feel good because women know how important it is to tend to the emotional self as much as the physical self. And they know how much pressure society puts on a man to be the stallion, the guy that goes forever, who can please everyone and anyone. And for women, that part of going through the act of faking an orgasm is participating in building up their partner and trying to make their partner feel better. And so the majority of women are actually doing it because they care so much about their partner. There are the minorities who are like, this is awful, get me out of here, or this hurts and I need to be done, but I don't want to tell my partner this hurts because I know that that is going to, you know, throw them off their game and make them, you know, feel like they hurt me and they don't want to believe that. And so, and it's again, just layers of women also trying to tend to the emotional aspect. You know, I know we briefly earlier already talked about sex hurting, but there's something you said at that point that just came up right now with what you mentioned where you're saying sometimes sex can hurt because you have like lower estrogen. And yeah. it just got me thinking, oh my gosh, I was on birth control for so long. Like, <laughs> yeah. You were like life-saving in my own journey, but I was just thinking, my God, so many women deal with just painful sex. And I wonder how much of that is driven from birth control. I don't know, just a thought that came to my mind. Yeah, so birth control can play a role. Not everybody experiences this, but um, some women on hormonal birth control will have vaginal dryness, vaginal atrophy, the tissue starts shrinking. Um, they can have, be prone to yeast infections. As I share in my other book, uh, Beyond the Pill, I experienced that. I had chronic yeast infections to the point where I became allergic to monostat. So that's super fun. And when you have repeat infections and inflammation, then that can also lead to pain with sex as well. Um, you can develop vaginismus. Like there's a lot of things that go along with birth control that makes it super lame because it's like, we get on it to not get pregnant and to have sex, and then you can't have sex in some instances. And so um, it's definitely one of those things, though, to be aware of, because if these, this is happening for you, you can change formulations sometimes, you can change the type of contraceptive, and then you won't have those issues. What's interesting is that I talk about a new study. We certainly need um, additional information, I think, before we prescribe DHEA. However, this study did acknowledge that testosterone is low in women who are on the pill. We also know this, and that can be a driver of low libido. So interesting because National Geographic just came out with this article and was like, well, there's really no evidence to support low libido. And I was like, oh, could you just listen to women? Like, God, like just listen to women because yes, not only is there research that does support that you may have a low libido, it doesn't mean everybody will. And that's research is like, well, not everybody will. And it's like, yeah, but like, don't you think you should at least acknowledge the women who are? But we understand that if you are on a formulation of birth control that stops you from ovulating, 
and it contains estrogen, which raises sex hormone binding globulin, that'll gobble up testosterone. And so in those instances, this one research paper is like, we may want to give DHEA, which is an adrenal hormone that can be converted into estrogen or testosterone as a way to mitigate that, to help with libido, but to also, I mean, as we said before, low testosterone is not just a libido issue. Uh, that might be the one you're noticing, but there can be other things going on as well. Earlier, you mentioned that you in the book talk about how women can use the time where they're ovulating to their advantage, but not get pregnant. So what are your thoughts on things like fertility awareness and somebody who doesn't want to take hormonal birth control, but maybe they also don't want to use condoms? Is there any truth to this system? Okay. So fertility awareness method can work great, but you got to play by the rules. (laughs) And so the rules are no semen can enter your vagina during that fertile window. Your same fertile window is when that libido is going to be up. That's going to be the ovulatory window or what researchers will call the sexual phase. So I have a a chapter in the book called Sex of All Kinds, which actually starts with talking about pain with sex. Um, And interesting, my editor was like, this is a weird place to start, to start with pain with sex. And I'm like, a lot of women have pain with penetration and then think they can't have sex. And yet there's all these other things that we can do. Oral sex, uh, frontage, like there's all these fun words for like different things that you can do um, that like maybe people did in high school. (laughs) And really sex uh, is something that so often is just defined as put a penis in a vagina. And and sex is actually anything that's bringing you pleasure. And you ultimately get to define what is sex for you. So with that, there's all these other things that you can do during that fertile window. Fertility awareness method demands that you cannot have unprotected sex. That means not even like, you know, just the tip or I'll just go for a little bit and pull out or I'll just go for a little bit and then put on the condom. I don't like anything that makes it so that you're not in control of your fertility if you do not want to get pregnant. So not a fan of the pull out method. Someone's going to comment and they're like, it's works for us forever. God, good. Like, and that is something that um, you always have to enter into birth control, weighing the risk and benefit for your life. And if you are okay taking the risk that one in five or, you know, 20%, and let's put it in that frame it that way, 20% will become pregnant with the pull out method and you're okay, possibly being 20%, then okay. But if you're not okay with that and you want to use fertility awareness method, you need to use barriers if you're going to have penetration or you need to do other things during that time. And like I said, the majority of women are going to orgasm with clitoral stimulation alone. That is actually no need for penetration if you're like, I don't, I don't want to risk it during that time. So the other thing with fertility awareness method is you have to do temperature tracking. You need to be paying attention to your symptoms, like your libido up being up, your fertile cervical mucus, and you have to have all of that dialed in. Um, often I will get people saying like, that's just the rhythm method or the calendar method. I'm like, no. That is that is based on the premise that everybody ovulates on day 14 and like has a cycle that's every 28 days. And neither of that is true. And you might ovulate on day 14 one month and then 13 the next month and then, uh, you know, 12 the next month and then 15 the next month. Like it, it, ovulation can move based on everything, based on light exposure, based on stress, based on travel and so many different factors. So Fertility awareness method can work for some people, but if you're not willing to follow the rules, you're not able to follow the rules, or you're somebody who has a wildly unpredictable cycle, not the best way to go it. If you are somebody who just had a baby 
and you're banking on the fact that you can just breastfeed and not get pregnant, there's a lot of women who do. And this, the big reason why is because ovulation comes before menstruation, but everybody teaches it as menstruation is day one and that menstruation comes first. And I can't even tell you how many women, there is no age bias in this. Like I'm talking women who no longer menstruate in postmenopause and women who are just menstruating and everything in between that have no idea that ovulation is the whole point of the menstrual cycle, that ovulation is what the menstrual cycle starts with, and that the bleed that you get is the result of there not being successful implantation of an embryo. So that is how all of that works. And it's really important that I think we be teaching it. I feel like this is like, this is information that's purposely withheld from women as a, like under the guise that it will protect them if you tell them they can get pregnant any day of the month. And I'm like, yeah, until they have unsuccessfully gotten pregnant for like a year and are heartbroken from this. But with that, you can only get pregnant one day out of the month. That is that egg and sperm can only meet and you're not even technically pregnant until it implants because we need HCG to come in and tell the, the luteinizing hormone, like I'll take over and make, make sure that we keep the, the progesterone going. Without implantation, you will, you will bleed. Um, but with that, that sperm can live like five, maybe six days. So it's important to understand whenever people are, uh, will say like, I got pregnant on my period. This is something I talk about in the book. My best friend's sister's cousin got pregnant yeah. on her period. So I know this is a lie. It's always like that. And I'm like, is this a real person? Or is this what your mom said? Like, or what, like, you know, your grandma scared you with, or what the sex ed teacher slapped a ruler and told you, like, um, so let's break it down. How to be, how could someone get pregnant on, you know, on their period? Okay. If you have, let's say you bleed seven days, but like, you know, day five, six, is that like, oh, is my period still going? Like, cause it's just like trickling spotting. And you decide on day seven, you're going to have sex. And like I said, that sperm can live. So maybe it's day seven, eight, nine, you ovulate on day 10 or 11. Sperm's still alive, maybe even day 12, if they're like some really strong swimmers. And if your uterus likes them enough to keep them alive, that's really like the reality of it is your uterus has got to be uh, loving them and tending to them. And then the egg's got to be like, you're cool and I'll let you in. That is the reality of fertility. None of this like fastest swimmer gets their first stuff. No, no, not that. So with that, you could become pregnant. You have like, you know, egg and sperm have met. Now we have, you know, several days later, like five plus days later, everything travels down, it implants. And then, you know, three days later, maybe you get a positive pregnancy test, or maybe you didn't think you were pregnant. And so you wait a couple of weeks and you're like, what, where's my period? And now you find out you're pregnant and you look back and you say, well, I was on my period. So I got pregnant on my period. In reality, you didn't get pregnant on your period. You captured sperm, you kept them alive, you incubated them. And once an egg was available, those little loiters were like, ah, egg, we know our job. Let's try to get you like, get you pregnant. So that is how that can work. And so that data is really important to understand because sometimes people are like, oh, I just don't have sex the day I ovulate. And I'm like, sperm be tricky, y'all they be tricky. Like they're like mother nature knows what's up with her agenda of like, keep the species alive. So I think, you know, if you are considering fertility awareness method, you really have to be 
cognizant of the rules and make sure you're going to play by the rules. You can't predict ovulation typically until about three days or excuse me, three months of using it. And if you are using something, so like I wear an aura ring, it integrates with natural cycles. I'm actually going through IVF and natural cycles caught my egg retrieval day as ovulation. And I was like, damn, natural cycles. I thought this information was going to be void. Um, And that was super impressive. However, I will also say you never can take a back seat to your fertility to an app, to uh, any kind of data tracking device, or even your partner using barrier methods or you like using like a contraceptive, like if you cannot get pregnant, you don't take like just a like, eh, we'll just see what happens kind of attitude to things. You have to be cognizant of even, um, you know, the over-the-counter pill that's becoming available. You have a very small window that you're allowed to miss before uh, you you will ovulate again. And so you have to be really on your game of the timing of those things as well. I know. I know me and Kaya keep wanting to jump in because there's so many questions. But what I find so fascinating, I know we ta- we're talking a lot about ovulation from a fertility perspective, but you, you saying that in your menstrual cycle, ovulation is really like the main star player. What are some of the benefits of women listening? Because, you know, if I'm being totally honest, I never really thought about ovulation until my husband and I began even just thinking about getting pregnant. And I was like, oh, okay, like, am I ovulating? What's yeah. happening? But why is it important for women who are listening who maybe don't want to get pregnant anytime soon to still be ovulating and thinking about that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm going to take it from this perspective. You don't want to get pregnant. There has been research showing that an ovulation, lack of ovulation, is associated with higher sexual dysfunction. So lack of pleasure, lack of desire, like inability to orgasm, difficulty orgasming. And that is something that we are so often told like fertility only matters, or excuse me, ovulation only matters if you wanna get pregnant. So if you have PCOS, just go on the pill because like ovulation doesn't even matter. Functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, just go on the pill. It doesn't even matter. And yet there's no research that has really explored in depth what happens when we basically hijack ovulation and all the hormones that come with it for decades on end. We don't actually know. We don't know the all of the benefits of ovulation because no one's bothered to study it. It's not been studied to the extent that it really needs to. So when somebody says ovulation is not necessary, that's not evidence-based. They actually, We actually just don't know. And so something to understand, so there's the sexual function. Progesterone, the only way to progesterone is via ovulation. You have to ovulate to get to progesterone, which is why if you are on a birth control that suppresses ovulation, like the pill, great if you don't wanna have a baby. So great if you don't wanna have a baby, but if you are suppressing ovulation, you never get progesterone. When doctors, researchers, everyone is like, oh, you're progesterone, there's no progesterone in the pill. It's progestin. It's a synthetic form of of progesterone because that's what you can patent. And that's what makes money, which is a very good thing. Let me just say like the economical impact of the discovery of progestin in Mexico led way for tons of scientists to be able to go like be funded to go to school. And like there have been a lot of benefits to birth control. However, we know that progesterone is necessary in the myelin sheath. That is the way that we actually run thoughts 
the way that I'm moving right now. I'm even talking. It's the basically like I like to think about a cord. So if you look at a cord like this, there's wires inside. Your your nervous system is inside and the myelin sheath is coating it so that it can send that message very clearly without it being dispersed. So we know progesterone is important for that. It's important for bone health. So brain health, if it's, if it's helping your nervous system, it's important in mood, it's important in sleep. There's a lot of benefits to progesterone. And yet we don't understand the progesterone deficit that we put people in when we put them on the pill. Because well, your doctor's like progestin, it's the same, same. The research shows when it comes to brain health, it's not the same. Um, you know, they even look at studies of postmenopausal women giving them progestin and it's not, yeah, there's no good. You want progesterone. So we, you know, I feel like when it comes to birth control, we've got a lot more questions than we have answers about things, but we get muzzled really quickly by people who are like, you know, the only feminist way is to never question birth control and to like everybody have access to it. And I feel like the feminist way is to question everything and have access to it and to just leave ourselves open. But I also get in the current political climate that we have to tread carefully because people do want to take away birth control. Um, and that is, uh, that is just not cool <laughs> by me. I'm definitely not an advocate for that. I feel like there's so much to talk about birth control, but Jolene, because of you, I realized when I came off birth control, I had something called post birth control syndrome. Didn't even know what that was. Didn't even know existed. Can you maybe explain what that is? And I know this is probably a deeper conversation, but maybe at a high level, a few things women can do who are going through that off birth control and want to support their bodies and hormones. Yeah. So Post-birth control syndrome, as I talk about in the book, and this is something that um, was born out of the functional medicine community that I heard people, uh, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, people like Sarah Godfrey, Dr. Sarah Godfrey, who's a gynecologist, um, Chris Kreser, who's an acupuncturist, myself, like there's been a lot of people having this conversation around it. And what it is, is a collection and really signs and symptoms that go together that can happen after you come off birth control. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there dismissing that anything could happen when you come off birth control. You know, the only thing that happens is you're instantly fertile. And I'm like, I lost my period for months and had to work to get it back after being like clockwork when I first got it. The other thing people will say is that, well, it's just the return of symptoms that you had. It can be the return of symptoms that you had but it also can be new symptoms. So I, um, it's very anecdotal just to use myself. I can certainly talk about patients, but because this is so recent and I shared it on social media, so it's actually on my Instagram and my YouTube, for IVF, I needed to go on birth control for a period of time. My God, did it kill my mood so quick. And I even tried to gaslight myself where I was like, there's no way that within a couple of days, you can be like this. Like, there's no way it can affect your mood that quickly. And then I caught myself and I was like, damn, it's like, you're not good. Like, like how we're just so good at gaslighting ourselves sometimes. So that was Yasmin um, that has drosperinone in it. I think it tanked my testosterone way too fast. And then I came off after only 10 days and I got acne. What? Only after only 10 days, I really didn't expect that. I had to go on it again for a month while I was in Europe to make sure to space things. And I, again, developed cystic acne. I never have cystic acne. 
This was my exact same experience that I had when I came off of birth control after 10 years and I developed cystic acne. And I have people who said to me, like when Beyond the Pill came out, like you always had skin problems, like you're just misremembering and, and all of this stuff. And even doctors that are like, that's not real. That's not a real connection. And I was like, God, I wish I had, like, we had Twitter back then, like in Facebook. We didn't have social media like we do now. Um, and so this time around, I documented and showed, like, this is what is happening to me in real time. And if people are like, why you wrote a book about birth control and you know the problems, why the hell would you take it? Go watch my YouTube. I explained, <laughs> I explained why I had to take it for IVF. I didn't want to, but it was necessary. And I really didn't think in a short term that it would have that much of an impact on me. And yet it did. The mood stuff uh, that happened with the first pill, I was like, I will not go back on that. And my doctor said to me, I see so many patients have mood issues with that, uh, that formulation that I honestly don't even recommend it. Like I prescribed it because I thought like she'll definitely be able to get this um, in Puerto Rico. Now that you're here, like just take this other one because it is like way easier on the mood. And it sure enough was. And so I tell that because you don't have to settle for the side effects or a doctor telling you there's no study that supports that you could be depressed while you're on the pill. Um, and if you're on your fertility journey, they love to tell us like, oh, you're just sad because like you're struggling with infertility and that's common. And it's like, no, I was fine. And then I started this pill and I was not fine. So with post-birth control syndrome, you can have mood symptoms on the pill that only get worse when you come off. For some women, it's like a, like a veil has been lifted and they feel completely different. Or you might start developing, uh, you know, other mood symptoms. The skin stuff, acne is one of the biggest things that drive women right back on the pill. And it's, you know, doctors are like, well, it worked. It kept your acne away. And you're like, yeah, but I want to have a baby. And they're like, okay, acne and a baby. Like, no, wait a minute. There's more to this going on. Um, you can also lose your period like I did the first time uh, that I came off the pill after 10 years. And, you know, it's not uncommon to see the period go missing for three months after stopping the pill. For women who use Depo-Provera, their period might not come back for like a year and a half. These are something, things that we're not told, right? We're told that, and that's like a normal time frame, by the way. Uh, and I just bring this up because Often women are told like, oh, you just like, you just come off birth control and then you can just get pregnant. But it's not that easy for everybody. And it's not because the pill caused infertility. We don't have, we don't have evidence to say that. We have evidence in the on the contrary, but there are other factors that go into it. Like, did you wait until 38 to stop your Depo-Provera and now you can't get your period back until 40, which is a harder time to conceive because age is horrible to your eggs and being on this planet in the most toxic time that ever to be alive as a human is hard on your eggs and your body altogether. Um, so I feel like I'm taking a little bit of a tangent. I could talk all about like what impacts fertility and how, why the pill gets blamed, but like there is nothing to show that the pill absolutely causes infertility, but it can delay you getting pregnant. So it should be part of the conversation with your doctor as you come off, depending on how long you were on it, that you might have to do some work to get your period back, to get back to cycling regularly. And it doesn't mean that like you've been rendered infertile and like, oh, this has completely destroyed your body. Sometimes people are like, I destroyed my body by taking this. I'm like, you didn't destroy your body. The body's so freaking resilient and there's a lot of steps. So um, I've been talking for a while, but you did ask steps. So one you know, thing is we've got to look at gut health. We know birth control, especially specifically the pill can have impact gut health. Odds are, 
other forms of hormonal contraceptives aren't interfacing with the microbiome in some way. We're just not studying it. We're not studying the metabolites and we, we just haven't studied it to that extent to say for sure. There is taking care of your liver, making sure that you are replenishing your nutrient store, specifically if you're on a combined oral contraceptive pill that depletes nutrients. And not everybody eats a nutrient-dense diet. So if you're on the pill and you're not, get on it. Like and start, and you can go to drbrighton.com slash hormone kit. And I've got a whole like meal plan that you can start. That's like just how to build nutrient density into your diet. We've got to look at metabolic health. So what I call the metabolic mayhem, we've got to look at what's going on with insulin, what's going on with inflammation, because that can be a component that makes things harder for coming off of birth control. And we have to understand what the individual's hormone issue is, because when you come off of birth control, there might be lack of ovulation happening, but we might have concomitant thyroid stuff going on and we might have um, adrenal issues going on. And so we have to really splice that out and start to address those things and looking at it of like, why did you go on the pill as well? Because we know that roughly 58% of women use the pill for other, sympt other symptoms that really have a root cause, but things like acne, pain, uh, pain with your periods, which can sometimes mask the diagnosis of endometriosis, um, irregular cycles that can mask the diagnosis of PCOS. So we do need to look at like, why did you start the pill as well? Because it is possible that you had PCOS. And so when you came off the pill and you get acne and your period's missing is because the pill was masking PCOS. And that was missed by many providers because they didn't care to ask because you were on the pill. Super informative. Jolene, you would make an excellent professor. Um, <laughs> I used to be a professor. I used to teach really? advanced human um, nutrition. And uh, yeah, in grad school, I taught advanced human nutrition and I taught uh, biology lab. I can dissect anything, friends. Um, <laughs> not that I want to because formaldehyde and formalin smell horrible. Um, but yeah, so I did used to teach. <laughs> so. I love that. And I've been following your um, a few of your videos on YouTube. For anybody who's navigating the world of IVF, egg retrieval, all of that, I highly recommend looking at Jolene's videos because they're so, not only are they very um, intimate in terms of what you're going through, they're so informative. And I feel like I learned a lot just watching your videos. Um, so that's super cool that you're sharing that. I want to end on a fun question that we ask all of our experts, which we got from TikTok, which is, as a doctor, what are three things you would never do to your body? Oh, what would I never do to my body? That I'm like, wow. <clears throat> I feel like I'm, I'm always like, I just, my like thing is always being so gentle with the choices that you make. Uh, you know, something that I would never do to my body is push myself to extremes in terms of physical activity. And, um, you know, I think it's, uh, really easy to be like more is more, <laughs> but it's not necessarily that way. So, um, I just say that as somebody who, uh, used to teach like 20 group fitness classes a week working her way through college that I'm like, yeah, I would never do that, especially now in my 40s. Uh, gosh, like this one caught me off guard. I've actually like three things I would never do to my body. You know, it's so hard to say nevers because part of me is like, I would never apply petroleum products to my body. But then I'm like, there might be a time where you got like a severe psoriasis <laughs> outbreak and then you need to have that. Like, and that's the only barrier you have available. I mean, I'm in Mexico city right now 
And like for my entire life, I'm like, don't drink out of plastic bottles. <laughs> and here it's like, well, you could get severe traveler's diarrhea and then we end up with C. diff in the hospital having your colon cut out, or you can drink out of a plastic water bottle kind of totally. situation. Um, yeah, I don't have a great answer for you guys, which I feel like, do people usually have great answers? Well, the answers run the gamut. They really do. We've had people sp stick with specifically health things. Like I will not go on the carnivore diet. And oh we, yeah, I would never go on the carnivore <laughs> diet. That I will never go on the carnivore diet. I will tell you that I had a um, severe uh, brain injury, and um, I like was re like rehabbing through that, and I did the keto diet. And I even then was like dreaming about apples after like six weeks. I'm like, can't. I love produce. I was like the kid that like would be like, oh, can I have a carrot like over candy? Like I, I swear to God, that was like my saving grace in my childhood is the fact I loved fish and vegetables. I'm like, oh my god like thank you like young me for being weird um <laughs> but yeah so never would do the carnivore diet I just always feel like cautious about using nevers because I feel like like the adaptable fluid organism is the one that survives and so when you're incredibly rigid and you're like I would never like do any of those things and then you have to do that thing there is this cognitive dissonance and um I remember reading a study like so, so long ago, and I don't even remember how good the study was, but like how cognitive dissonance can contribute to cancer and to chronic illness and disease. Um, and just like being so dogmatic and rigid about your life can be so problematic when you're faced with the challenges. Like, like never did I ever think I would go through IVF. And then after like a year of miscarriage after miscarriage, miscarriage, I was like, okay, the embryos are the problem. We need to test the embryos. IVF is available. Should we do it? Um, I would have never said I'll never do IVF. I just never thought that I would. And so here I am. I don't know. That's my answer though. Is I, I just feel answer. like don't be too no. rigid. Yeah. I love it because to your point, I tell people not to drink out of plastic bottle water. And the other day I was on the plane and out and about, there's no glass. I'm like, F it. Yeah. I'm thirsty. Like I'm going for it. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> or like when we're in Italy, the only way you could drink clean water, right. was through plastic. And well, it's like my, um, my, my brother and who is also Yasmin's husband always says, he says, let me see if I get this right. Strong opinions loosely held. And I love <laughs> yeah. that. Right? I like like that. It's, yeah, it's such a good Drew's way. a smart guy. I, yeah. I like the majority of things that come out of his mouth. But, you know, but to your point of like, do I stay dehydrated? No, because on the plane, you're getting exposed to all these environmental toxins, um, which is a necessary part of travel. And it's freaking amazing. We can fly in the sky like, whoa. But yeah, there's environmental toxins, right? and you need to be drinking water. Um, I'm always like eight to 10 ounces for every hour I'm on the plane. I'm trying to drink that much water. Where do you think they're pouring the water from when they give you water on the plane? It's coming out of the plastic water bottle. I need to drink that much so I stay hydrated. So my mucous membranes can defend against God knows what I'm breathing on the plane. Um, viruses is what I'm thinking of. Um, so that my liver can do its job so that my kidneys, my bowels can do their job. So I don't end up constipated at my next destination and feeling like completely horrible. And so when it comes to the choices you make in life, it is always a risk versus benefit analysis. It's why like with birth control, I'm like, it's never like one or the other, like it's what is true for you. Like, are you okay with the risks and can you mitigate the risks? That's what I try to do and be on the pills. Be like, if you're going to be on it, let's, let's try to help you be successful on it. So you feel good and you have the pregnancy prevention of your choice. And you know, the same is true with like 
drink I don't want to drink out of a plastic water bottle here. And every time I do it, I'm like, oh, man. And actually, um, uh, axisanthin, I always have a hard time saying that, is an antioxidant. Okay, guys, like there is like no hard data in humans. But I, I'm like, look, I'm trying to get like pregnant now and I'm not going to wait 20 to 30 years for that data. It has been shown though that it may actually mitigate against the oxidative stress that bisphenols can cause the ovaries that can cause problems with your eggs and with your hormones. So whether or not you want to get pregnant, um, bisphenols, which is the B in BPA, they can cause oxidative stress in the ovaries. And that's an antioxidant that's been shown to be beneficial. It's also been shown to be beneficial to have melatonin and to have myo-inositol circulating in the ovaries, like in the follicular fluid to be protecting those eggs as well. So um, that is just to say that we can understand that like the world that we live in and that like sometimes we have to decide that like, you know, repeat E. coli infections are a bad thing and we have to drink out of the plastic water bottle, but also I can mitigate some of that by making sure I've got antioxidants that are going to protect my eggs and my ability to make those hormones. Yeah, absolutely. I love that, Jolene. Thank you for joining us today for this conversation. Yeah. So fun, so informative. Went by so fast. I know. <laughs> really like another one. We could talk to you all day. I feel like we have a million questions, but you're amazing and you're just helping so many women. We're so honored to have you on, but thank you for all that you do, Jolene. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is a great conversation. I'm so glad we got the ability to connect. And for everybody listening, we tried to jump on last week, which was like, uh, I think it was like day three or four post my egg retrieval. And last time three or four, I was actually doing better. And this time I was like, no, I had like I had a, a bloating moment and I will talk all about on my YouTube how I mitigated all that and got rid of it quick. But you guys were so nice. I was like, I'm I'm here, I'm gonna do it. And you're yeah, like, you're you such just a reschedule. I was like leaning back, I couldn't even sit upright. I was like, my ovaries then just need room. Like <laughs> but so thank you so much for your like your grace and your patience and your understanding. And I think it just really uh, truly demonstrates like how female-led businesses can be where we can hold space for the normal processes of life, like, you know, having a baby and having to recover or, or, you know, whatever it is and still be successful and have a good time. Preach. I love that. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Well, thank you, Jolene. We're so inspired by you and we will definitely be in touch. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.